following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ in whom, Lord, is life. Lord, thank you for those you've brought in history, for Samuel, uh, Lord, that you've used to uh, call people to repentance and your message through them to bring people, Lord, into right relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that uh, after Samuel, you brought so many others. And Lord, thank you for the impact that they've made. Lord, for all that they had suffered God, and how you sustain them to the end and used them so that we could have the Bible we have today and the, the doctrine that you preserve through them. Lord, may we never forget or take for granted how you've used many reformers in history. Father, I pray for now as we look to your word, as we look to Jonah again, that, Father, you would teach us, that you would move us to please you, to obey you, to exalt your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are going to be in Jonah again today, and as we start our time, I just want to <clears throat> ask you a question. Give me your honest answer. How many of you in here will admit to having used the phrase, good luck? Anybody? Yes, me too. Uh, interesting word, that word luck. It turns out we have a lot of phrases that contain it, a uh, number of phrases in our language that have this word luck in them. Any, any come to your mind? What are some other phrases we use? Potluck. <laughs> Who said that? Jack? You know what? What's so funny about it, that's the first thing they said first hour. Now, that is the only biblical term that uses luck in it, but all the other phrases. Any others? Thanks, Jack. What's that? Luck of the draw. Lady luck. Bad luck. Lucky charm. I like that cereal. Come on. Or a lucky charm. Lucky dog. I never got that one. Uh, Lucky dog. Streak of luck. Tough luck. Out of luck. As luck would have it. Better luck next time. Wish me luck. Right? A ton of these phrases that we have this word luck in. As if it were some guiding force in our lives. Some mysterious power that affects uh, our circumstances and our situations. But just what is luck? Uh, Some passionate but misguided preachers have claimed that the word luck actually uh, comes from the word Lucifer. Um, Not true. I guess that's kind of like some who say, well, Satan comes from, Santa Claus comes from Satan, you know, same letters and they both wear red. Uh, Anyway, I'm not going there. Actually, I refer you to a Christmas message Dave Hintz did a number of years ago. He talked about that very thing, but While not connected to Lucifer, the Oxford English Dictionary does indicate that luck likely was originated from a Dutch word in the 15th century, Gaelic, which meant happiness or good fortune. Webster's definition is interesting of the word luck in the English language. It is a force that brings good fortune or adversity. The events or circumstances that operate for or against a person. 
But this idea of luck as some nebulous force or fate or chance in some way influencing the events of our lives, is that really a biblical concept? No, it's not. I'm not trying to be nitpicky, but, you know, wishing someone good luck, is that really consistent with what the Bible teaches about what affects our lives and our circumstances? I mean, indeed, there is a force at work in our lives, is there not? But that force is not an impersonal one. It is a personal one, none other than our creator, the Lord God. And one of the clearest examples of how he is at work in our lives is seen in the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. So we're going to be there this morning, if you could be turning there. And before moving on to our next prophet, Amos, I wanted us to take one more stroll through this book of Jonah, where we will see the providence of God at work in Jonah's life. Providence of God is is defined as uh, God's constant involvement in his creation, sustaining it and directing it for his glory and for our good. And it's the hand of God that's uh, moving through the course of history to carry out his will. And his providence is slightly different than, you may hear the term sovereignty of God. Sovereignty focuses attention on God's right to rule and his power to rule. While providence focuses on how he exerts that rule within creation. For some, these terms, providence or sovereignty, uh, to them it just means, well, that just means God does whatever we want and we just have to deal with it. They think that, you know, even though there may seem to be no rhyme or reason in what's happening, that's just the way it is. God's in control. That's how we have it. But, you know, looking at Jonah and his story does not paint such a cold picture of the providence of God. If you remember, Jonah was written to put God's compassion on display and it contrasts god's compassion with that of jonah's the climax of the story actually comes at the end right when the shade the plant that god brings about and brings shade over jonah and then god ends this account or the author of jonah ends this account with god asking jonah that question you remember jonah really liked that plant and god said if you if you had such a great concern for this plant should i not have a great concern for these Thousands and thousands of souls in the great city of Nineveh. And then, as we talked about before, this, this uh, story ends in such a way that the author has twisted it and he's flipped the question not just to Jonah, but to us. For he's written this account for us so that we would see God's compassion not only to be moved to exalt and praise God for it, but also to be motivated to carry it out and to live it out and show compassion to others. This wonderful portrait of God's compassion. We find that the, actually the canvas on which this picture is painted of his compassion, the canvas is the providence of God. It is what brings it all together. And as we look at this story one more time and, and see how God's providence works in such a way to exercise his compassion upon our lives, I trust you'll be encouraged. Now, the outline this morning is kind of a simple one. I'm just going to follow the, the major scene, the four major scenes of the, letter, of the book, the, the ship, the fish, the city, and the shelter. We're just going to move from scene to scene and see how God's providence was at work in each of those scenes. And the first scene is the ship, right? Again, we, we're pretty familiar with the story by now. Jonah gets on the ship. Why did he get on the ship? He was on the run, right? Trying to get away from God. He didn't want to obey God's command to go to Nineveh to, to preach uh, the message that he was going to send him to preach. And so he gets on the ship to run away. Jonah the whole time thinking that he's in control. But we know the real thing happening, right? God is going to show that he's the one in control. 
And as Jonah was taking off, he got on the ship. How'd that work out for him? Yeah, lucky. All right. Jack, is that you again? See what you started? <laughs> Good fishing. <laughs> That's what the fish were saying anyway. But look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Yahweh hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. That word hurled actually means to throw. It gives a picture. One preacher put it, God on the pitcher's mound of heaven, throwing a massive fastball across the Mediterranean. The author here emphasizes that God is the one who brought the storm. We see that in the original language because normally in a Hebrew narrative, the verb is placed first, followed by the subject. And so that is the case in Jonah in every verse here in chapter 1 except for verse 4. Verse 4, the author put the subject, Yahweh, first and then the verb. I think he's drawing attention, drawing emphasis to the fact that uh, God is the source of the storm. And even the characters in the story recognize this, right? Jonah said in verse 12 that he knew the storm was on account of him meaning that God had sent it. The sailor said in verse 14, You, O Yahweh, have done as you pleased. And then when Jonah was chucked overboard, what happened to the sea? What happened to the storm? Became calm, right? Clearly, God was behind it, that he hurled this storm and then he calmed it. But this is no unique event, for God's power over the weather is described throughout Scripture. Psalm 135, verse 7 says, God brings wind out of his storehouses. Or Psalm 107 is an interesting passage. Verse 23, it almost describes this account that took place in Jonah. The psalmist there says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of Yahweh and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. These and Many other passages describe God's intimate involvement in nature. He indeed controls the seas. And there are countless examples where his power and his sovereignty were not just over the ocean, over the seas, but also over all of nature, right? Remember all the plagues sent upon Egypt? Or the many times that God withheld rain? Or in one time he even stopped the rotation of the earth in Joshua 10 in order to keep the sun in the middle of the sky for the whole day. And, you know, we, we really shouldn't describe these events where we see a God uh, in nature and, and his actions as God's intervention. We shouldn't describe them as, you know, God chose to suspend the laws of nature in that moment. We shouldn't describe it as just God being actively involved. Because those statements would seem to make it sound like nature is working on its own. And then from time to time, God steps in and does something. But see, that's not the case. You know, God never says, you know, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to let the universe kind of run on its own. And then then I'm going to intervene, you know, on occasion. I'm going to suspend the laws that I'm subject to. Suspend those laws so that I can be involved. That's not the picture at all. Hebrews 1.3, very important verse that says, Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. That word uphold means to sustain, to carry, to bear. He upholds all things by the word of his power. All of creation, from the droplet of rain to the ray of the sun, from the waves of the ocean to the waves of light, 
from the orbit of the electron around the nucleus of, a, of an atom to the orbit of planets around the stars to the orbit of stars around whatever they orbit around. I think it's black holes is the theory now, right? Any of you astronomers out there? There's, anyway, I won't go there because I don't know anything about that. But point being, all of this activity within the universe is being upheld by God for all time. All of creation is upheld by the word of his power. In fact, turn turn to Job 37 for a minute. Keep your finger in Jonah. Job 37. It's where Elihu, which was one of the friends God did not condemn, has these things to say about about God. I'll remind you while you're turning there. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.45 that, Who is it that sends rain upon the good and the evil? Who is it that causes the sun to rise? God. Psalm 148.8 declares that hail, snow, clouds, wind, all obey his command. And then we have in Job 37, verse 6, speaking of God, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour of rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man, that all may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, out of the north the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made. And the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. He's not saying here, and neither are the the other psalms and passages that speak of God's uh, Uh, You know, the breath of his of God is he makes the ice and the winds obey his commands and all these aren't figurative ways of saying God is somehow involved in nature. What they are saying is that God runs nature. God runs nature. You thought your ice maker made ice because you had a machine that was uh, condensing some sort of gas and, and causing the temperature to drop and it dropped below 32 degrees Fahrenheit and then your ice froze. It's not how it happened. Those were the means in which God uses. Many may explain the weather by barometric pressure and arctic currents and the rotation of the earth. But at the end of the day, why does the sun come up? Or to be more accurate, why does the earth rotate so that we see the sun? How is it that the winds come about? Or that uh, we're experiencing the temperature we're experiencing today? That's right. God has decreed it to be. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That word uphold, by the way, in Hebrews 1 is a present tense participle, which brings emphasis to the fact that it is continuous. It is constant. God is always continuously, constantly sustaining all creation by the word of his power. Job 37, 12 said God's providence, if you look there, is not confined to the Mediterranean Sea in the day of Jonah. It's not confined to the Middle East but over the face of the entire earth. And so on the day when Jonah thought he was in control by refusing God's instruction and running away, God reminded him otherwise by bringing this great storm. And, you know, we can tend to forget, too, about God's continual sovereignty over nature. The sun came up this morning, didn't it? At least last I checked, it's still out there. There's still oxygen in the air. As dirty as it may be, it's still there. We can breathe. Just like yesterday, the day before, clouds in the sky, the ocean waves continue to pound upon the shore over the beach of Santa Monica and Zuma. And 
Right? These things continue and happen just as they have been. Life goes on as usual. And because of this, we can tend to take for granted or overlook or maybe not even realize God is at work all the time. It's like those electronic devices that we have. I know some of you have them now with the Bible on it, right? Right? Except, Ed, are you still watching the game? Okay. We have these devices, right? And we press buttons, and nowadays you can move your finger across the screen, and things happen. It does things that you want it to do or hope that it will do. But do you know what's going on behind that screen? I used to make chips that that go into little devices like this. And and these chips contain little tiny unseen devices that are moving electrons back and forth. And in devices like this, it's happening uh, hundreds of millions of times and billions of times per second. Per second. Think about the activity. That's a lot of mice running around back there. It's unbelievable just to think about in this one little device what's happening behind the scenes. And now to think of the, uh, the innumerable, the uncountable number of atoms and molecules all in motion by the hand of God. We rarely give it a second thought. You think you have a busy schedule. Again, he upholds all things by the word of his power. We, we don't worship a wimpy God. Amen? And look at Verse 13 of Job 37, notice there, very important point Elihu brings up, and that is that there is purpose in God's providence and nature. Notice what he says there, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, God causes it to happen. Again, this shows us God has purpose in what he brings. God's storm in Jonah was for Jonah's correction and also for the sailor's salvation. Remember, too, there were other people affected by that storm, weren't there? We aren't told about them in Jonah, but there were certainly others who were on the Mediterranean who experienced that same storm. And yet God had an intention for them as well, did he not? It wasn't like God was focused only on Jonah watching him get on the boat, and then he has this plan, oh, I'm going to use Jonah now in regards to these sailors' lives, and he throws a storm and says, oh, man, I forgot about that fisherman. I just sunk his boat. Maybe he did sink a fisherman's boat that day, but he had a purpose in it for that fisherman, did he not? There's activity going on all around us, and God has a purpose and intent in bringing that. He was using that storm that day in many people's lives for different ends. And God's providence in nature is not just seen in these big events, these big storms, but also in the small ones as well. If you look back in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17, or excuse me, verse 7, you remember what, what was the state of the sailors in that boat as the storm hit? Were they playing shuffleboard on the deck there? And they were terrified, right? They were scared. They thought this was it. And so they're all scrambling around, crying out to the gods, figuring out which one is mad at us. We got to deal with this. And then what did they end up doing in order to find out what was happening? If you look at verse 7, exactly, it says, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and lo and behold, the lot fell upon Jonah. What a coincidence. This casting lots was pretty common in that day. It involved uh, probably small pebbles or stones that were specially marked, uh, kind of like dice uh, we have today. And what typically they would do is either throw these stones within their uh, pouch or their cloak or in a container and then ask questions and draw them out. These were typically yes or no kinds of questions. And through that, they would be guided to whatever decision 
they thought, was made by these stones or pebbles. They were used many times in the Old Testament. One, in a case to discover a wrongdoer, to settle a dispute, to uh, appoint temple doorkeepers, even to allot the portions of the land of Israel. They cast lots in order to determine that. Even their first king, Saul, was chosen by Lot in 1 Samuel 10. And while many attribute the outcome of lots or dice or straws or cards or coin coin flips to luck, we know better, don't we? Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision, every time it is thrown in, every time the dice is rolled or the die is rolled, God is at work. It's every decision is from the Lord. It's every outcome, every result, every judgment is what that verse means. And again, in Jonah's case, it was no coincidence that Jonah was the one that was identified by those little pebbles as the guy that was responsible for their predicament. God governs the big and the small. There is no such thing as luck. There are no accidents. There are no events that take place where God is absent because, brothers and sisters, the God of the storm is also the God of the dice. And if even the outcome of a a roll of two little pieces of ivory is decided by God, then there's nothing too small that you can pray for, is there? There's nothing so insignificant that you cannot bring it before the Lord. There's nothing so small that you cannot ask God for help or direction, right? Right? Well, once Jonah was found out, Lot was cast. They figure out it's him, right? The sailors then start asking him all these questions. Where did he come from? Who he was? Why he was there? And in Jonah 1.9, he says, I fear Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, this statement is strategically placed here by the author. Though there was other conversation that happened before between Jonah and God in particular, the author did not choose to, um, to, to uh, articulate, to write out Jonah's words until verse 9. This is the first time he speaks in the narrative. And also, too, if you were to count the words in Hebrew in this section from verses 4 to 15, there are 94 Hebrew words that occur in verses 4 to 8. Before verse 9, there are 94 words that occur after from verses 10 to 15. I think the author is drawing attention to this verse as an important and critical foundation, really, for the book. That God is God. That He is the one who has the power and the rights to govern creation as He so chooses. For it's the creation that He has made. Sailors recognize this, right? In verse 14, again, they say, You have done as you have pleased. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Or Psalm 135.5 says, For I know that God is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. These verses tell us God acts according to His desire within His creation and over His creation. He's not subject to anyone's opinion. He doesn't have to check into some committee to see if what He wants to do is okay or not. He doesn't answer to anyone. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, recognized this in Daniel 4.35 when he said, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand. That means to stop Him. And no one can say to Him, What have you done? Again, the idea there is God doesn't consult with anybody. He does whatever He pleases, whatever He wants to do. Paul said as much to the Greeks in Acts 17 
when he said, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, and neither is he uh, served by human hands as though he needed anything. And then Paul says, Because he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Again, his providence here, as Paul speaks, is intricately woven in every aspect of our lives. He says here, God gives to all life, breath, and all things. Psalm 145, 16 says, You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And Paul notes that God providentially sustains not only His creation, but He also decides the direction of history. He later goes on to say in Acts 17, 26, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundary of their habitation. While we may see border disputes between nations resolved by either diplomacy or war, in the end it is God's determination. We may see a person who is cured from a disease by surgeons or by treatment, but in the end it is God's determination. We may see a person randomly struck by a a car or a, a bullet or even lightning, and in the end it is God's determination. As he said in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one, no one who can deliver from my hand. And God will use different means to accomplish his purposes in our lives, these decisions that he has made. And that's what we can see in the very next setting in the book of Jonah as we move from the storm to the fish. In the Hebrew text, verse 17, there at the end of chapter 1, is actually part of chapter 2, as well as in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. And I think that's the most logical division, because verse 17 describes the transition as we go from above the sea to below it. And it focuses attention on what happens there. In this chapter, chapter 2, we have one of the most well-known miracles in the Bible, right? It's a key miracle in the book of Jonah, Jonah's three-day camp out inside Shamu, is what's recorded here. Those younger folks, Shamu was this killer whale down in San Diego that's uh, long gone. But was this great fish a random appearance? Did it so happen that this sea creature that was large enough to swallow and contain a man just happened to be around the ship at the time Jonah went overboard? Or that this fish all of a sudden had an inclination on its own? I think I'm going to swallow that guy. Did it just happen that way? Look at verse 17. It says, Yahweh appointed, that is, ordained, allotted, sent a fish, a great fish, to swallow Jonah. We see this word appointed three more times in chapter 4. And the, the phrase here is showing that God's providence is, is not just confined to inanimate objects in nature, but also to living ones. Notice it says God is the one who sent the fish. And God is the one who prompted that fish to swallow Jonah. And God is the one later in chapter 2, verse 10, who commands that same fish to vomit Jonah up onto the beach. We see God's sovereignty not only over this one fish, but over all the animal kingdom, right? All through Scripture talks about that. Who was it that led a school of fish into the nets of the disciples when they had caught nothing the whole night? Jesus did. The power of the Holy Spirit led those fish there. And again, He does the same thing in John chapter 21. God had ravens bring Elijah food during a time of famine in Israel. Bears were sent to devour some young people who had mocked the prophet Elisha because of their disrespect. Kids, take note of that passage. 
Parents, by the way, it's 2 Kings 2. 2 Kings 2. You'll be amazed. It works wonders in your home. God caused a donkey to speak. Numbers 22. He sent locusts numerous times. And Joel, we just saw one example of that. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, that not even one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. Not even one tiny bird. The lifespan of every creature is in the hand of God. Job 38, 41, very interesting passage where God himself is speaking to Job. And in that text, he gives numerous examples, example after example of his governance of animals, of, of the animal kingdom in providing their food, when they give birth, where they are, how they live. And God used a huge fish to save Jonah from sinking to the depths of the sea. He could have rescued him any number of ways, right? Another boat could have come along, a branch. He could have teleported Jonah, for that matter, right? Just zapped him over right under the beach. But in God's wisdom, he chose a fish. And he chose and decided that Jonah would stay within this fish for three days, probably so that he could think about things. He put them in this uncomfortable and unconventional location in order for Jonah to consider the course of his ways. And sometimes the mean means that God chooses to get your attention may not be comfortable and may not be convenient. Sometimes it may not make any sense. Sometimes it may not be what you expected or what you wanted. But know that the means God chooses will always be the best, right? God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. We see another aspect of God's providence in Jonah's prayer. If you look at chapter 2, verse 3. Notice the statement he gives there as he's speaking to God. He says, For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Now, does that statement strike you as odd in any way? How did Jonah end up in the water? Right? Was it some large hand that came out of heaven, like the hand that wrote on the wall uh, for King Belshazzar? Was it a hand that took Daniel and... Or Daniel... I did this first hour. I kept mixing names up. Was it a hand that took Jonah off of the deck of the ship and threw him in? Or did God send a blast of wind that blew him overboard? How did he end up in the water? Jonah 1.15, exactly. The sailors chucked him over. The sailors pitched him in the water. And yet Jonah says here, you cast me into the deep, God. And what's going on here? Is Jonah delusional from sniffing all that stomach acid of the fish? Actually, in this case, he wasn't in the fish at that time. He was sinking into the water. Jonah's giving us insight here. He understands the providence of God. Yes, the sailors were the instruments of his ending up in the water, but he knew that God was ultimately behind it, that God used sailors to throw him in. And here's where we wade into more difficult waters, and I use that pun intentionally, in regards to God's providence. Because most people, you know, we talk about God's sovereignty and his power and you you discuss situations governing nature. They don't have a problem with that. Or even when we talk about God uh, controlling animals, most people are fine with that. But when it comes to people, some say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you saying that God made those guys do what they did, that they didn't have a choice? What about our own wills, our own decisions? Do we not have choices in the decisions we make? You remember Joseph's story, right? Remember him, favorite son of Jacob? I almost said Jonah. All these J names in the Bible. (laughs) Jacob, Jonah, Job, Joshua, Joseph. Anyway, 
favored son of Jacob. His brothers hated him, right? They wanted to kill him. They eventually didn't do that. They found a way they could make a little money. And so what did they end up doing to Joseph? They sold him, right? Sold their own brother. Eventually, after a number of events, Joshua almost said, Joseph, see what I mean? (laughs) Okay. Joseph eventually ends up as vice pharaoh in Egypt, doesn't he? He's the second guy in command. A severe famine hits the region. Joseph's brothers, of all places, end up right in front of their brother, Joseph, asking for food because they had run out. And when they found out it was Joseph, they were shocked and they were terrified, right? Because they remember it was just 13 years ago when they sold their own brother into slavery. Joseph certainly remembered that. But listen to Joseph's understanding of what happened in Genesis 45. As he's speaking to his brothers here, he says, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father of Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Who did Joseph understand was behind all that happened to him, even his own brothers selling him out? He understood it was God. Now, he does acknowledge his brothers sold him into slavery, right? He he did say once, you sold me. But notice three separate times he repeats, God sent me, God sent me. I am here not because of you, but because of God. He is the one who has put me in this place. And his brothers, you know, their intentions were not noble at all, were they? They were extremely wicked, terribly wicked. And yet God used their wickedness to accomplish his ends in saving Jacob's family from this famine. Joseph later said in Genesis 50, you know this passage, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for for good, right? For good. Theologians call this concurrence, that is the cooperation of God's sovereign will with man's will to accomplish God's purposes. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. And, And we don't really have time to go down this road, but just know that God's providence does not negate our will, nor does it remove our responsibility for the choices we make. Joseph's brothers sinned against Joseph, right? Right? Okay, good. I just want to make sure we understand that. Selling a family member into slavery is bad. Right? That was sinful. It was terrible what they did. But it was their choice. They chose to do that. They were not forced to do that. They wanted to sell him into slavery. Jonah recognized that God used the sailors to get him in the water. But the sailors threw Jonah in by their own choice. In fact, interestingly enough, it was at Jonah's recommendation. But they made the decision to do that. It was their desire to throw him in. And God's providence in our lives doesn't mean that we are puppets or robots because human beings do what they want to do. So rather than getting bogged down here on man's 
choice versus God's will and, and how all that works. And I'll put some resources on our website, some books that you can read if you want to dig further and look at this. But rather than, than going down that road, I want us to see another important application from Jonah and jo- Joseph's example here. And that is that ultimately we must see as they did that our circumstances come from the hand of God. The good that people do and the evil. God always has a purpose in that. It's never for nothing. God always has a purpose in what he ordains. And this is so important, particularly in the area when you have been sinned against or wronged to forgive. Because look at Jonah's example. He didn't harbor ill will towards these sailors. Or Joseph, he readily forgave his brothers because he knew God was behind it. And he knew God had a good reason for it. I'm sure there were those days that were difficult. But he understood that God was the one in control and is in control. And he took comfort in that. And he recognized God even used his brother's wicked act in order to bring about good. And so he could readily forgive his brothers. You know, he even used the sin of Joseph's brothers to be the means by which they would be saved in the end from the famine. So not only does God use others' sin in our lives, He uses our own sin in our lives as well. And now again, this doesn't excuse sin whatsoever. But we should find comfort in this, for nobody has free reign to do anything. No person, no animal, no creature, no circumstance, no demon, no being in this universe can do anything outside of God's will or control. And God will somehow use even the wicked acts against you and against me for his glory and our good. Let's move on. Let's move on from the fish to the city. Chapter 3. Jonah makes his 550 plus mile trek from the western coast of Israel all the way to Nineveh. And upon his arrival in Nineveh, he cries out these words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all the message that's given in chapter 3 verse 4. Just five Hebrew words. Some scholars think that Jonah did say more, that there was more to the message, and we're only being given a summary here of that message, which is possible. The author has left out a dialogue from other conversations, particularly in chapter 1, the conversation Jonah had with God. We don't learn about that until later. Or the conversation, what he said to the sailors. Not everything was included there. But others say that these five words spoken by Jonah in chapter 3, verse 4, is all that Jonah preached. I think that's pretty plausible as well, because remember, Jonah still was not happy about being there, was he? Yes, he obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh. He didn't want to think about what God would do to him next if he didn't. Fish was not good. I don't know what. Okay, I'm going. Right. So he went. But we find out in chapter four, he wasn't happy about being there. And he was definitely not happy about what happened. So I would not be surprised at all if Jonah just said as little as possible, the bare minimum that he was commanded to speak. And yet, despite his short message, verses 5 through 9, they describe how the Ninevites responded in an amazing way, right? They believed in God, they trusted in Him, and they repented. They truly repented. The seed of revival, just as Ed mentioned earlier, repentance. As a result, they were saved not just from the physical destruction that God said he would bring, but the spiritual destruction that they were headed for. Jesus affirmed that later in Matthew 12 when he's speaking of the Ninevites. 
You know, we aren't talking just about a few people here, are we? How many people in this city repented? We're talking the whole place. Now, just get, let's, let's think for a minute and imagine this, just to get the scope and the magnitude of what happens here. Imagine as we leave the church today, uh, before going over to the potlucks, as we leave the church today, and we go out and we see people on the sidewalk, weeping and crying out, looking up into the sky, crying out for mercy. We see others who are kneeling on the ground, praying. And, and as you get to your car, as you're walking, people are coming up to you, begging you, how can I be right with God? How can I have eternal life? And it's not just happening here. As you, as you travel home, you find people all over the place that have come out of their apartments, out of their houses, on the street, weeping, crying out, lamenting, asking for God to forgive them, all the way into North Hollywood, all the way to Glendale, all the way to Sun Valley. Imagine seeing that everywhere. That is the scope of what's taking place here in Nineveh. Utterly amazing. A massive revival. A massive conversion. And it could happen here, couldn't it? Couldn't it? Yes. It could. We need to continue to bring the gospel. Pray. What makes this revival all the more amazing is that it comes in response to a rather short and vague message from a reluctant prophet, one that probably had a frown on his face the whole time. And it came from a, a man who was from a distant foreign land, a country that would, the Assyrians would have considered inferior. And yet they responded to his message in such an incredible way. In, en masse, they came to God in repentance and belief. And just, just how could that happen? I mean, think about that a minute. How in the world would, what could explain a city of pagan Gentiles worshiping idols and could care less about God, didn't know God, and from mighty Assyria of all places, and them converting upon the message given by this prophet and probably just one day that he spoke it? How could that happen? Some scholars say that, well, as looking through and examining various Assyrian records, they found evidence of earthquake, an earthquake happened, uh, an eclipse a famine took place all around the time period near Jonah. So perhaps they were influenced by these. They saw them as omens. So when Jonah shows up, they're more open to, to listen. Others say that Jonah's miracle in the fish had preceded him. That word had gotten out and proceeded ahead of him. That, that this, he'd lived in this fish for three days and nights. And, and some say that maybe his skin was still a little bit pale from the stomach acids. I don't know. He'd been traveling a month. And given the fact that the Ninevites had a fish god and a fish goddess that they worship, that must have had an influence. Others say that there was civil unrest going on at the time because of the weakness in the Assyrian monarchy. And so that made the people more open to Jonah's message. And it's possible some of these things were factors. It's possible some of these things took place and influenced in their uh, decision and their response. But we don't know for sure, do we? Because the Bible doesn't include any of this stuff. We don't know what was going on except for what we have here in the text. So what could explain this most unlikely of revivals? You got any ideas? Well, yes. Sunday school answer, of course. Right? But rather than searching for some natural explanation, we need to remember who is the one responsible to bring life to those who are spiritually dead? We remember Lydia in Acts 16, right? Very explicitly says there that God, the Lord, opened her heart to understand and to believe the things which Paul was telling her. 
Right. Just as Lydia's heart was open, so, too, did God open the heart of the Ninevites. And though it's not stated explicitly here, we know that they responded only because of God's grace. Right. Only by God's choice. We see this truth when Paul was in Pisidian Antioch and he was preaching and he told the Gentiles that he was now bringing the gospel to them. And Acts 13, 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You see, God's providence is not only at work in nature. It's not only at work in the animal kingdom. It's not only at work in the actions of other people. It's also at work in salvation. It was at work in your salvation. For you and I, we were no more open or closer to responding or believing in God than Lydia was. Or the Ninevites. Or those in Pisidian Antioch. Romans 3.11 says, There are none who seek for God. Not even one. But God seeks. He sought the Ninevites. And I'm so glad that He sought me. If you're a believer, God sought you out. You can't take credit for this. I can't take credit for it. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of... Yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Some of you here this morning have not yet experienced that grace. You have not yet experienced a real transformed life because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. You can't pay for your sins, the sins you've committed against Him. His message of judgment to Nineveh applies to you. May not be 40 days, but rest assured, it's coming. And so, as the Ninevites did, you must do. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ. The Bible says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll receive eternal life. It also says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there are many out there, many that I've talked to that are savvy. They've heard these things we've been talking about this morning, God's sovereignty, especially in salvation. And, and they will say, well, since salvation is up to God, then I'm just going to wait for him to act. Since he has to give me the faith and I don't believe in him yet, it's on him. Let me say, well, I've, I've asked him to save me. I've asked him to give me faith. I've prayed for repentance and it hasn't come. So I guess I'm just not chosen. So I'm just going to go on as I'm going. But friend, I would ask you, what did the Ninevites do? What did the Ninevites do? They took action, didn't they? They took action. They repented. They took steps towards confession, seeking forgiveness, turning from their sin. They believed in God. And you cannot ignore Jonah 3.10, which says very clearly, when God saw their repentance, then he relented concerning the calamity he was going to bring. Whenever Jesus or the apostles, whenever they proclaimed the message of the gospel, they didn't say, okay, now just wait for God and, and his work in you. Their message wasn't, you know, wait for him to grant you faith and repentance. Or, you know what, at some point, just ask God to open your eyes. No, they gave a command. They gave a call to action. Jesus said, repent. Jesus said, believe. He did not put it on something else, but on that person. And when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you point your finger at him and say, you did not give me the faith. 
Jesus is going to point his finger back at you and say, you did not believe. Joel 2.32 says, God is the one who calls. But it also says, you are the one who needs to call on him. Now, how all that works, subject of many theological debates. But, but don't use God's providence as an excuse for not obeying Christ's clear command to repent and believe. You know, any one sin can send a person to hell. Any sin can send a person to hell. But only one keeps them from heaven. Unbelief. So turn to God now. Don't blame him. Don't say, well, God, you haven't chosen me, so it's not my fault. Commit to follow Christ. Be resolved to turn from your sin and trust in him. Forsake your sin and turn to him in faith. You need to respond, though. You need to take action. And those of you who are saved, yes, God is sovereign in salvation, but he uses means, doesn't he? He uses means. He used Jonah and Jonah's message, right? People in Nineveh were just going on with their day only until they heard this prophet speak the word of God to them. Then they responded. Lydia responded when she heard the word of God. Romans 10 says that very clearly. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? And so we're reminded here that God speaks through his word. We must not only pray for souls, we must also preach to souls. They have to hear the gospel to respond. Well, so far we've seen God's providence at work in nature and in people and even in our salvation. But what about in trials? What about in trials? It's easy to accept God's sovereignty, His providence in the good things, like being rescued from drowning or from judgment. But what about when we encounter pain and suffering? What about when trials and struggles come? And we're, we're ready to say God is good when the good things happen in our lives, right? But it's a little more difficult when something difficult happens. Like Job, right? He responded in that way. Blessed God, even going through the most terrible of circumstances. Well, Jonah's story in chapter 4 goes this direction in regards to the fact that God brings a trial in Jonah's life. And so as we move from the city to the shelter, we will see how God uses this trial in his life. Chapter 4 is where the author brings the whole story together. We find out the reason for Jonah's uh, desire not to go to Nineveh, right? Why was that? Why didn't he want to go? Remember? He hated them, right? He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want God to show mercy on them. He wanted them to rot in hell. That's how bad it was. So after the one-day preaching tour, he marches outside the city. He plops himself down, builds a shelter, and sits there and waits. And I think, again, hoping that the Ninevites would not, that they would change their mind and go back to their sin and then be judged like he thought they deserved. So he builds this shelter, because in that part of the world, especially in the summer months, it's not that mild of climate there. In fact, in the summer months, it's well over 105 degrees every day. And so apparently it was that time of year when Jonah decided to do this. And so he built his shelter for shade. And then verse 6 says, if you notice there in Jonah 4, the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to be shade over his head. That word appointed showing up again. God sent this plant to grow up overnight. Again, it could have been a squash plant of some kind with large leaves. Again, we see God's mercy here. He sent or appointed the fish to rescue Jonah 
from drowning, and here he appoints the plant to provide shade for Jonah in the hot sun. And Jonah was pretty happy about the plant, wasn't he? In fact, it says there he rejoiced the great rejoicing. He was very pleased. But then comes verse 7. What happened? Just as God appointed the plant, sent the plant, he sent a worm. And attacked the plant, and it withered. Jonah is enjoying a shady vine. God sends this worm, or perhaps it was a grub, or a weevil, or a beetle. But, hey, come on, this is a story about a great fish. It had to have been a worm. Right, Don? It was a worm. Okay, see, Don said it was. Fisherman says it was. So it was a worm. But anyway, this small, voracious creature... He destroyed the plant in as much time as it had taken to groan. And then on top of that, verse 8, God sends or appoints a, a scorching east wind. So he sends a plant, then he sends a worm, then he sends this wind, which likely knocked Jonah's shelter over, because it says there he was ready to faint from the heat and wanted to die. And what's interesting, this, this guy, rather than just say, okay, and go back into town, find a motel with an air conditioner, and he stays outside on the hill in the sun. AC units back then were this big leaf that went up and down. but Right, but he stays out there in his stubbornness and his self-righteousness and his bitterness. This three-time repetition, God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. The author's clearly emphasizing God is at work here. Just as he hurled the storm, just as he sent the fish, so too he sent the plants and the worm and the wind. But why? What's the point of all this? Why is this here? God wants us to see something, doesn't he? He wants us to see that he will use his creation, whether it's weather or worms or fish or fire or ravens or rain, cancer or broken bone or betrayal or harsh words. God will use it to accomplish his purpose in our lives. And we see in Jonah's case, God's purpose in the middle of verse 6 why he sent the worm. It says there that the plant grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head too. And no, here comes the purpose. To deliver him from his discomfort, the New American Standard says. If you remember back when we talked about that phrase, that phrase is literally to save him from his evil. To save him from his evil. You see, God brought the fish because Jonah was in physical peril. And now God brought the worm because Jonah was in spiritual peril. God brought this trial in his life to rescue Jonah from his sinful heart. And brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged by this. Because, you know, God will bring worms. He will appoint worms in your life. Sometimes they will be small ones. Missed an appointment. Or got somewhere late. Sometimes they'll be very large ones. But know that God sends them not because he is getting back at you, not because he's throwing his weight around, not necessarily because you've done something wrong. Jonah needed correction for his self-righteous lack of empathy, and so God sent a worm. But then there are those like Job, walking with God, a good dad to his kids, caring for the poor, a model citizen, but God still appointed a worm by taking everything from him. And then there's Daniel, another man of God. But God still appointed a worm, taking him from his home to be in service to a wicked foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar. And know that God appoints these worms, these trials for our good. You know Romans 8.28. 
right? He causes all things. There's his providence. He causes all things to work together for good to whom? To those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. All things that God sends in our lives. All things, whether it's a fish to deliver us or a worm to teach us. He causes all things to work together for good. And what is the ultimate good that God is aiming at? What is the ultimate purpose that he uses these things and everything else in our life for? Verse 29, to conform us to the image of his son. To make us look like Christ and be like Christ. Jerry Bridges said in his book, Trusting God, which is a must read, by the way. You have to read it. I command you to read it if you haven't read this book. Because he, he expresses some very difficult principles and issues and things that we deal with in life in, in, a, in an explainable way. And I like how he says regarding trials, God does not delight in causing us to experience pain or heartache. He always has a purpose for the grief he brings or allows to come into our lives. Most often we do not know what that purpose is. But it is enough to know that his infinite wisdom and perfect love have determined that the particular sorrow is best for us. God never wastes pain. He's right. God never wastes pain. God brought a worm to rescue Jonah from his bitter heart. God brought a worm in the form of a storm to rescue those unbelieving sailors from their pagan idol worship. God brought a worm even upon his own son in the form of a cross to deliver humanity from their sin if they would repent and believe. And so when that worm comes in your life, you need to trust God. Yeah, he sent the worm. He sent the worm. But no, God has not brought it for your harm, but for your good. That really is the message of Jonah. God's compassionate providence at work to rescue the lost and to grow them into the image of his son. And God may not remove your worm for a while. He may never remove it. He may not deal with it in the way that you want him to deal with it. He may not deal with it in the way that you feel he needs to. And brothers and sisters, I look out and see you. I I know many of you have experienced very painful things in your lives. Things I have not experienced. I'm not speaking here from a lofty tower. I understand. God understands. But God never wastes your pain. He will use that, is using that in your life for good. So trust him. Trust him. As Jesus prayed, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the fish. We thank you for the worm. Lord, help us. Lord, give us the eyes of faith when those trials come that we would trust you, that you would remind us good that it's going to come. And Lord, that you would use each of us in one another's lives to be an encouragement and a help in those difficult times. I pray you would give us greater understanding of your sovereign power, of your providence as you work in our lives, that, Lord, we would trust everything to you as your son did. We thank you for his example of complete and total faith, even in the midst of 
Lord, trials beyond imagination. To hang upon a cross and suffer your rejection. To have our sin placed upon him. Or continue to work in our lives to conform us to the image of Jesus so that we would look like him. And so that in the end, you would be honored and your son would be exalted and lifted up. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.